Please go ahead and take your Bibles and turn them to Romans chapter 9. We get back into Romans today and been very much enjoying this. So find Romans chapter 9. And before we get into the text, before we read it, I am looking for a volunteer. And they need to be very small but very mighty. But very small. Because if you're not small enough, it will destroy my illustration. So do I have a volunteer who's, you know, pretty young? Maybe one of the younger people in the room. I know there's some Thompson boys over there. Come on, guys. I got something for you. I was, all right, come on up. It's kind of open for the littlest one, but this will work too. Come on up. You can come up here. Why don't you say for everyone your name? Chase. This is Chase Thompson. All right, Chase. Now, I have a jar of fluff here. What kid does, do you like fluff? Do you know what it is? It's like white marshmallow stuff. I don't know many kids that don't like fluff, um, but here's, here's what we want you to do. We want you, with all your might, to try to open this jar. Do you think you can do it? You think so? I'm secretly hoping you can't, but <laughs> let's see. See if you can open that for us. Give it, like, give it your all. Really try. It kind of hurts, right? It's got ridges on it. I picked that on purpose, yeah. Thank you for trying. Good job. You actually did exactly what you were supposed to do. Go ahead and have a seat. Maybe I'll even give this to you afterwards. I don't mean to feel, like, feel kind of bad. So first service, I, I had to choose my daughter, Presley, and uh, she afterwards showed me. She had a red mark on her hand just to prove she didn't, it, we didn't like fix the illustration. She really tried, Okay. Now, one of the things about your kids getting older, those of you who have had kids and they're kind of growing up, you, you feel this. It's kind of sad because they don't need you as much as they get older. So my kids have always, like I have three girls, they've always been, Dad, open this for me. Open this jar for me. Reach this plate for me. Do this for me. Well, they kind of get to a point where they can do it themselves. And if you have girls or boys, there comes a time where they might be able to do things you can't do, Right. So seeing them grow up is kind of hard. I kind of like being the dad because dad can do what the little child cannot do. And so there's this sense of uh, inability, and that doesn't mean that you're not strong, okay? Um, I, don't, I don't want him to feel like he's a weakling. It, here's the deal. I actually tightened this as hard as I could tighten it, picked a wide jar that was big for small hands and one with ridges, so it was, it, sorry, it was, it was never going to happen. But a dad can do what a small child cannot. In our text this morning, we're going to see that most of the Israelites were trying so hard. They were trying. They were, they were working. They were striving. And they were not able to attain what they were striving for. They lacked the ability. All of their efforts were in vain for the simple fact that you cannot be right with God in your own efforts. Oh, they were trying to be righteous. But they were unable. It's impossible to be right with God in our own power. We need someone to do something that we cannot do. And that someone is Jesus Christ. And we see that in our text. So look with me. Romans chapter 9, verse 30. So find uh, New Testament. Find the book of Romans. Big number 9. And we're going to be at the very end of the chapter. Starting in verse 30. And then we're going to read down through chapter 10, verse 4. So follow along as I read this morning. Romans 9, 30 and following. 
Paul's writing these words and he says, What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In chapter 10, verse 1. Paul's saying to his fellow Israelites, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for Israelites, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is God's word. Now, there's a lot of stuff in this text, okay? If you read the commentaries, there are pages and pages, and there's a lot to dig into, but I, I want to I boil it down and simplify it. Chapter 10, verse 4 is, is going to be our emphasis here. So if you glance down, chapter 10, verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's our main emphasis here. This verse can mean a lot of things when it says that Christ is the end of the law, the telos of the law. What does it mean? Well, it could mean that the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Jesus. It does mean that. It could mean that the whole goal of the entire Mosaic law, the goal of it was Jesus. That's also true. But one thing it clearly means, when we understand this text in the flow of the book of Romans which is all about being right with God, right? Is that all of our efforts to be right with God and all of our failures in that attempt find their end in Jesus. All of our attempts, and we try to be right with God, we try to be a moral person, we try to do what's right to justify ourselves. And all of our failures in that attempt find their end in Jesus Christ. Our self-reliant efforts should find their end in the gospel because the gospel is about rest, right? The gospel is about letting go and not trying and trusting in Jesus. No need to sweat and strain in our own power. No more trying. No more trying. So look at chapter 9, verse 31 here, and we read, Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. They failed. They did not succeed. A couple things to note here I want you to see. And first is that when Paul mentions Israel, he's speaking generally of Israel. He's not saying that every single Israelite did not see Jesus or didn't see the true purpose of the law. No, there were some. There's always a remnant. We've, we've seen that in the last couple sermons. There's always a remnant. And so there were some Jews who believed in Jesus. And when he speaks of the Gentiles, he's not saying all Gentiles come to see Jesus as Messiah. That's not true. But he is saying that, generally speaking, more Gentiles were coming into the kingdom at that time than Jews were. And, and the fact that any, any Gentile would come into to, to the, the kingdom was kind of shocking to the Jew. So he's speaking generally here. And not much has changed since Paul's day, right? I mean, by and large, most of ethnic uh, Israel does not see Jesus as the Messiah. And if you think about church history, most of the church has been comprised 
of Gentiles. And so his words apply today just as much as they did then. Another thing that is important to note, I think, is that when Paul pens these words, he's not writing a secondhand account. He's not writing a history of Israel. This is what happened to Israel. He is writing a personal story because he lived this. Paul lived this. Paul actually was one of these people who tried to attain righteousness, who, who worked really hard and found himself not succeeding. Paul, he, he worked harder than most everyone around him. I mean, he, was, he studied under Gamaliel. You remember this famous scribe, this famous Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, Paul says about himself. In Galatians 1, he says personally about himself, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. So Paul got this. This is his story And where did that road take him? Think about Paul. Where did that road of self-justification and morality take him? It it took him to the point of persecuting the church, killing Christians, opposing the very God that he was trying to serve and trying to please. And it took God blinding him to wake him up. So this is personal for Paul. This is him sharing, hey, this is where I was. In our text here in Romans 9, Paul has an incredible burden for his countrymen. You see that come out in the very beginning verses of chapter 10? He has a burden. He he knows their passion. He knows their zeal. But he also knows that it hasn't gotten him anywhere. So I want you to look at verse 32 here. And just from from the verse, can you see this? Why was Israel's striving and trying in vain? Because righteousness doesn't come through our works or through our effort. It never can. It's a flawed approach. In fact, it's a misuse of the, misuse of the law. It's taking the law that God gave to Israel and it's misusing it. And just so today, if you take any law, Ten Commandments, Golden Rule, anything, and you try to use that to live by and hope that one day you'll please God enough that he will let you into his heaven, you're misusing the law. That's it's not what it was meant for. You're, you're doing it wrong for using the law that way. And back to the, the, the jar illustration. It's not just that we're too weak to open it. That's true. But it's that we're turning it the wrong way. We're cranking on it, trying to do with the law what it never was meant to do. And the harder we try, the worse it gets. It's not going to happen. In fact, it would be just as productive to not do anything because all of our efforts and all of our striving and all of our Morality on our own doesn't get us anywhere with God. Doesn't matter how hard you work, it doesn't matter how hard you turn that lid, it's not happening. I see this phrase here, they did not reach the law. That's, that's true about ethnic Israel. As they, as they tried to reach the law, they never could, they never could do it. It reminds me back in chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short. Of the glory of God. They couldn't reach the law, it says in our text here this morning, because they fall short. Every person falls short of the glory of God. Now, if you ask the average person on the street today and you say, hey, do you think you're going to go to heaven? What, what are most people going to say? Most people are going to say, yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm a pretty good person. I try to, I try to treat other people the right way. I, I mean well. Um, yeah, I, I, think, I think God, yeah, I think God will let me into heaven. I mean, the people that don't go to heaven are this kind of person and that kind of person. So most people would say, yes, I, I think I'm good enough. But what are they basing that on? What is the basis? What is the metric that they're using? It's a game of comparison, isn't it? Because I can always find 10 people who are worse than me. 
Right? I can find 10 people that are worse fathers, 10 people that are worse husbands, people that are, 10 people that are worse citizens or neighbors. The problem is that's a faulty metric. That's not the standard that God gives us. He doesn't just say, hey, if you're better than most people, you're going to be cool. You're going to be all right. No, Romans 3.23, again, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The, the glory of God is the metric. Well, that's a different story, isn't it? The perfection of God, the glory of God, the righteousness of God. So our metric is faulty. And you might be sitting there saying, but, but come on, God doesn't actually expect perfection, does he? I mean, who could do that? James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. So for the average Jewish person in Paul's day, they were fastidiously keeping the law. But you fail in one point, and the Bible says you're guilty of all of it. Well, man, I fail in one point like every minute or every hour, right? Out of the Ten Commandments, is there even one that I've kept my whole life? And so the, 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 the Scriptures say, if you fail in one point, you become guilty. And you say, well, what if we're sincerely trying? I mean, what if we just, we mean well, and we're sincere. Today, it's not so much about what you believe as much as it is that you're sincere about it, right? So our culture hates hypocrisy, and rightly so. We prize authenticity and sincerity. You, you believe in God? Great. You don't believe in God? That's fine, too. How do you get to God? Well, there's a lot of different roads, so in the end, it doesn't much matter. right? I mean, we, we just... As long as you're sincere, okay, whatever you believe, as long as you're sincere. But look at chapter 10, verse 2. Paul says, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And Paul says, sincerity is great except when you're sincerely wrong. The religious leaders in Paul's day, they didn't lack passion. They didn't lack fervency and zeal. But just because you're sincere doesn't mean you're going to stand before God one day and he's going to look at you and say, you're cool with me, you're right with me. Because it does matter what we believe. Even those who believe in God, and not everyone does, but even those people who believe in a God and they are zealous for him, have to ask themselves, what God is it that I even believe in? Who is he? Because just being zealous for God does not make you right with God. Zeal must be based on knowledge or it's misdirected zeal. It's misdirected. You know, I've never been to uh, Jerusalem. I'd like, I'd like to get to the, the Holy Land someday. Some of you have been there, and if you've been there, you've seen the Wailing Wall probably, right? The Western Wall. The, it's a famous uh, wall that uh, connects to the Temple Mount. It's a place where the, you know, the religious Jew will go often uh, to pray, to weep, to mourn, really mourning the loss of the temple and kind of all of that, that that means in Israel's history. Hundreds, if not thousands, of little prayers will be, will be scratched out on paper every day and shoved in the wailing wall. And so um, you'll see that if you go there. One thing I didn't know that I learned this week was that they actually collect all those prayers and yearly they bury them on the Mount of Olives. I did not know that. But there's people there praying. There's people there weeping. There's people mourning over the loss of this temple. And here's the problem with it. The problem is not zeal. The problem is knowledge. Because Jesus Christ has already come. He is the new temple. 
He is who we worship through and who we worship. We don't need that anymore. And so there's this zeal and this passion, but, but missing the whole point of the temple, which was the point of Jesus. So zeal isn't enough. It's got to be this zeal that has knowledge. Our understanding of God his, and his way of salvation, it's got to be based on what he's revealed to us about who he really is and what his plan of salvation is. It can't just be my version of God, what I think about God, or the God that I select or know God. It has to be God as he's revealed himself in his word. I mean, it's, we, we just sang, I believe in all of these truths. I believe in God the Father. I believe in his Son. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. It matters what we believe. It's not just being sincere. I mean, it's simple enough for a child. Aren't you glad it's simple enough for a child? It's, it's not complicated. I'm so thankful that it's not complicated. But we must believe certain truths that the word of God gives us because good intentions aren't enough. Zeal isn't enough. There are certain truths, not only about God's word, but specifically about God's son, Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul gets to. Who is Jesus? And what do you do with Jesus? Because that makes all the difference in the world. Chapter 10, verse 3 says, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, that's their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. This is speaking about the Jews, but I'm, I'm wondering, perhaps you're here this morning, and, and there's never been a time in your life where you've cried out to God and you said, God, I need your righteousness. I am not good enough. I can't keep your law. I've been trying to be a good person, but I, I find myself knowing deep down that it, it might not be good enough. Have you ever cried out and asked God for his gift of his righteousness? Or, as the text says, have you ignored that, been ignorant of that righteousness, and you have tried to establish your own righteousness? Now, you may not travel to the Western Wall in Jerusalem, but could it be that you've been striving on your own to find a way, to, to, to make a way to be religious enough, to be good enough, to pray enough that you're hoping you'll be okay. The problem is righteousness has nothing to do with how hard you work. You can crank on that lid. You can do these good deeds as hard as you want, as often as you want. It has nothing to do with how hard you work. That's what the book of Romans has been teaching us. Righteousness has nothing to do with how hard you work. Now, Admittedly, this can be offensive to us, to our human sensibilities, and I'll, I'll illustrate why I think this is so. You ever, you know, as a child or maybe in, in, in college or graduate school or whenever, you've worked so hard for a grade, like you studied for a test only to like pull off a C, and then they pass out the tests and uh, some kid who got an A on his test says, yeah, I didn't even study for that. And you're like, what? <laughs> That is not fair, right? Or, or here's another one. You know, you work really hard to purchase your first vehicle. Let's just say hypothetically, it's like a 1982 Chevy Custom Deluxe blue pickup truck. Hypothetically, okay? Not much to look at, but it gets you from point A to point B and you, you know, take care of it and all that stuff. And then here, here comes this joker rolling in with this new car that his mommy and daddy bought him for graduation. And you're like, grrr. <laughs> it just doesn't seem right. I probably should be happy that the family was able to do that. But, you know, our flesh is like, hey, what's the deal? I worked hard, but I don't get this. You didn't even work, 
and you got that. And this is probably how these Jews are feeling as Paul is explaining the gospel in the book of Romans. They're saying, wait, you're telling me that the Gentiles aced the righteousness test and they didn't even try? And meanwhile, I've been trying so hard and I bombed it? That doesn't seem right. And so they struggle with this. As we'll see, it becomes a stumbling block. Paul's saying those who thought they were in were actually out. And those that were supposed to be out were finding their way in to the kingdom. But isn't that the way that grace and mercy works? It's actually not based on what we deserve. And, and have, you, have you seen that in the last couple of texts of Romans? It's, it's, salvation is not about what you deserve or justice. It's about just the unmerited grace and favor and love of God. That's it. It's not based on what we earned or what we did or what we deserve. Bottom line is righteousness has nothing to do with how hard you work. It has everything to, to do with who you know. Who you know. Look back at chapter 9, verse 16, if you have your text open, your Bible open here. Romans 9, verse 16 says, So then it, that's salvation, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God. That's how salvation works. That's how grace works. Righteousness is found in Jesus. Indeed, Jesus is righteousness. So are you here this morning and you are sincere? And probably most of you, right? You're sincere. Are you laboring hard? Are you trying to be the person that, that you're, you think you're supposed to be? Perhaps that's true. Is there any possibility that you've been assuming your whole life that you're going to be okay on the final test? The problem is you've been comparing yourself to the wrong metric. Is there any possibility that you'll stand before God and you will fail the test because you didn't follow the prescription that God gave you in his word, which we'll see in a second, which is faith? Is that possible? Perhaps for some of you this morning, it's time to stop trying to stop trying. Enough of the feeble attempts to make something of yourself, to, to be right with God, to hopefully do enough good things. It won't work. The law was never intended to work that way. God never gave us the Ten Commandments as a way to attain salvation. He, here's your instructions for getting to heaven. That's not what the law was meant for. The law was meant for more of an x-ray to show us, oh, we need somebody else. We can't do it. We need Jesus Christ. So you're trying to, to, to make the law do something it never was meant to do. So you're cranking and you're doing the things you think you're supposed to do, but, but that's not what it was meant for. It's against the grain of what you were supposed to be doing. So no more trying. Secondly, this morning, no more tripping. No more trying and no more tripping. You see, as we read through this scripture, we come to this passage on the stumbling block, right? Romans 9, 32 and 33. So I'll read this again. You can pick it up in the second part of verse 32. They have stumbled, this is the Jews, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, so what's this stumbling block, stumbling stone? What, what is Paul talking about. You do a little bit of study, maybe if you look at your cross-references, if you have those, you'll find that he is quoting two passages in Isaiah. 
And he's kind of conflating them and bringing them together and, and mashing them together. And so what we see is that the, the stumbling stone is actually Jesus that God established that people stumble over. And so that, that's confirmed in 1 Peter 2 as well, which references this passage when it says that Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected, but now he's become the cornerstone. So he is this, this, this stone that, that people stumble over, but God has made him the chief cornerstone that we build our lives upon. You could say it this way. The Gentiles stumbled upon Jesus. The Jews stumbled over him. The, the Gentiles stumbled upon Jesus. They weren't looking for him. They, they, all of a sudden, there's Jesus, and some of them believed. And they kind of stumbled upon Jesus. But the Jews, by and large, stumbled over him. They didn't know what to do with Jesus. He, he didn't fit into what they expected. The Jews were looking for a Messiah. They were looking, but they were looking for the wrong things. And they didn't see him. As this suffering servant, the, the suffering Savior that Isaiah writes about, they missed that. It's not what they wanted. It's not what they were looking for. And so they stumbled over him. And they did not understand chapter 10, verse 4, which says, For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus is the end of all of that effort, all of that law. He's the fulfillment of it. Why was all of Israel's trying in vain? They were trying to keep the law for righteousness' sake. And they should have been all along keeping the law for Christ's sake. So they're trying to do the right things and keep the law. Why? For righteousness sake, to be righteous. Instead of keeping it with an eye on Jesus. Their goal was righteousness. Their goal should have been Christ. They thought, I need to be righteous. What they should have thought was, I need Jesus. They were far too short-sighted. It's kind of like this, you know, the law is a path, and the path is supposed to take them to Jesus. But they're so focused on their steps on the path, you know, got to make sure I do the right things. i got to keep the law. And so they're on the, the path and they come upon Jesus. They bump into Jesus and they stumble over Jesus because all they could see was their own law, their own righteousness. It reminds me, if you've ever been camping, and I'm, I'm more talking about like tent camping than glamping. Uh, you know, I don't know how you like to camp, but you know, if you are in a tent, you got to go to like a bathhouse or some kind of other place uh, to get to, you know, a shower and bathroom. So if you're like me, you know, you take that flashlight with you or your cell phone or whatever, and you're trying to light the path, and it gets dark in the middle of the woods at night with no, you know, like city lights and stuff. And there's been times where I'm trying to like light the path, and I'm like, oh, I, I better light right in front of my feet, because if I trip over something, it's, it's not going to be good. But then as you're like right in front of your feet, you might actually miss what you're trying to get to. In Pennsylvania, we got to worry about bears. I don't think they're, Harry Beamer assured me first service, there are no bears in Indiana. Am I right? Okay, but in Pennsylvania, you got to worry about bears. So you're like trying to watch where your feet are, but you're like, what was that? <laughs> is that a bear? <laughs> and so you're, you're you know, and, and the Israelites are doing this. They're, they're, they're trying so hard to focus on their steps. They're, they're, they don't see Jesus. The path was meant to take them to Jesus. And so they get to Jesus, they stumble over him, and then they're still to this day on that path trying to find the Messiah, trying to be right with God. They forget that the path was supposed to take them to Jesus, and they missed it. And they still, here they go, walking. And, and not just the Jewish people. Many people were in that situation. Morality, the Ten Commandments, all that stuff was meant to, to lead them to Jesus. And they stumbled on Jesus, and they're still on the path. 
Is it possible you've missed God's righteousness because you've been myopically focused on your righteousness? Jesus is the watershed issue. He is the dividing point. He, he's what people either stumble over or make into the cornerstone, or really God made him the cornerstone. What do you do with Jesus? You know, it's not enough to believe in God. So many people will say, I believe in God. Yeah, like I'm a Christian. I, I believe, believe there's a God. And The Jews believe there's a God. They still believe there's a God. There's many people who believe there's a God. But what do you do with Jesus? He's really what Paul is saying matters. You know, today it matters little what you think about politics. Honestly, even some of the moral issues of the day, while important, what do you do with Jesus what do you believe him to be? Who do you believe him to be? Do you believe him to be who he is revealed in this scriptures? Or have you contrived some other version of Jesus, this good moral teacher who just kind of had a bad, untimely death, but you try to live like Jesus and he's your moral example? Or do you take him to be the son of God who died on the cross in our place and gives us his righteousness and all of our sins on him, that substitute? Do you, do you believe in what God said about Jesus? Is he your cornerstone? Or have you stumbled over him? I began thinking, why is Jesus so offensive? Like he's this stumbling block. Why do, I mean, you can talk about a lot of people, but you start talking about Jesus, and now all of a sudden he can be a bit of a controversial character. Why? why? A couple reasons, I think, from the text and just from the gospel is Jesus is righteous and we're not. So if you're trying to be a good person, you think, yeah, I'm pretty good, and you start to study Jesus, and you go, kind of makes me feel a little uncomfortable. I mean, even Peter, when he was around Jesus, goes, whoa, I'm a sinful man. Get away from me. <laughs> and the Pharisees, oh my, they, they, they were trying to be righteous, but when they saw somebody who was righteousness incarnate, oh, they didn't like that at all. They hated Jesus, and they stumbled over him. How about this? He is the way, and without him, we can't find the way. He's the way, and so we might be trying in our life to find the way, but until we realize Jesus is the way, we're missing it. And when we find out Jesus is the way, that means I got to change the way I was going and go Jesus' way. That can be hard. To admit that we're unable, to admit that we have need and he has what we need. It reminds me of a time that I, um, I was off the Jersey Shore. I was swimming in the, in the ocean there. And I was an adult, so this isn't too many years ago. But me and a few other people were caught in a riptide, you know. And, you know, I, I grew up since a little boy at the shore. I know what you're supposed to do in a riptide. You're supposed to swim sideways. You know, don't, don't just keep swimming because you'll tire yourself out. And out comes a couple lifeguards. I, if I remember correctly, it was like a younger lady who brought out, you know, a red flotation device and, like, handed it to me. And I was thinking, man, like, I don't need that thing. I know what I'm doing, you know. And my, I could feel my pride welling up. Like, I'm good. I'm just going to go. And I remember just grabbing it and being like, you know what, because I was kind of tired, I'll be honest, I was tired, but I, my pride was like, <laughs> I don't need a girl to save me. <laughs> and there's a lot of people in this world today that feel that very same way. You know, here's this person offering me this, this lifeline. Jesus is going to save me. I don't need saving. I'm okay. To admit that we are unable, to admit, to admit that we are headed for death and to cry out to Jesus, well, that's a humbling thing, and so I think he offends us. How about just his humble birth, his humble life? I mean, he's born in a stable, doesn't really have an address throughout his life. And the Jews are like, yeah, that's the Messiah? I don't, I don't think so. And then how about the way he died? He dies on the cross. And so the average Jew is thinking, yeah, I mean, that's not 
that's not what God, that's not the, the Lord that I'm ready to follow. He's going to set up his kingdom on earth. He's going to destroy the Romans and the enemies and all of this stuff. And they missed it. He's a different kind of Lord, right? He's a different kind of Lord. He, he calls us to follow his example, to die to our flesh, to our old life, and to humbly and obediently follow him. That's, that, that offends. His call of discipleship. And so I don't know what it might be for you if Jesus has been a roadblock, but it's probably one of those things. He can be offensive. Look at verse 3 of, of chapter 10 here, because we see that what happened with the Israelites is they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. And that, that word there, establish, means stand. So they're trying to stand on their own righteousness, right? They're, I'm good. I'm standing on the morality of the law and what I've done. I'm better than those Gentiles, that's for sure. Standing on that, on that righteousness that they have contrived. And the problem is when you stand on your own, righteous, own righteousness, you will stumble. You will not be able to stand. You will fall if you stand on your own righteousness. So God isn't impressed with our trying. That God doesn't want us to stumble over Jesus. Where does that leave us? Lastly, this morning, only trusting. No more trying. No more stumbling. Only trusting. This is the only way to find righteousness. And it's always been the only way to have faith in Jesus alone for salvation. That's the gospel. It, it is simple. Admittedly, it is simple. Okay, It's not a complicated sermon this morning. This is a, a, a passage in, in Romans that tells us it is faith alone that saves us, not our works, not our efforts, not our good intentions, not our knowledge of the Bible. And that seems kind of overly simplistic, but that's all we have is only trusting. Righteousness is through faith alone. And ultimately, why is all of Israel's trying in vain? The text says because they lacked faith. They didn't have faith in Jesus Christ. They didn't believe in him. They didn't see him as the answer that they were looking for. Verse 32, they did not pursue it by faith. And this is truly the reason that any person misses righteousness is because they don't have faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It always has been this way. It always will be this way. So if we reject the offer of God's righteousness, right, and we try to establish our own, we're responsible we're responsible because we've decided not to take the righteousness that God has given us in the person of Jesus Christ. We've said, no, I, I'm good. We're responsible. And if you've been with us here and you've been studying Romans along with us in, through chapter 9, this is kind of an interesting text, isn't it? It's, it's kind of a complement to everything we learned so far in Romans 9. And Romans 9 has been controversial, right? You start talking about God's sovereignty and his election and all of this. And what we've seen is Paul has instructed us, God is sovereign in salvation from beginning to end. He's sovereign. We saw that not everyone is saved. Not everyone does trust in Christ. Anyone who ever does become saved is only, can only attribute it to the mercy of God. Not because of them. Not because of their abilities or their knowledge. We saw, no, God's marvelous mercy. That's it. Plain and simple, we can only blame God if we're saved. But here, now Paul is saying, the reason that Jews miss it, the reason they don't find salvation, truly the reason no one, or, or I should say anyone, misses salvation is because they lack faith. And so we say, wait, we're responsible? I thought God was the one who elected people to salvation. Yes, that's true. And yet we see that those who do not trust in him are responsible. 
Why? Chapter 9, verse 32, they don't have faith. Chapter 10, verse 3, they don't submit to God's righteousness. So here's the main point. Somehow, both of these truths stand. Somehow, God elects certain people into salvation, yet those who are not elected are still responsible for their rejection of Christ and their lack of faith. People are not puppets. They're still responsible. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it so well. I'm going to read this quote for you. I don't have it up there, but if you can listen carefully, here's what he said. He said, it is the ordination of God that brings anybody in, into the kingdom. It is a man's deliberate refusal, refusal and rejection that keeps him out. We are responsible for our rejection of the gospel, but we are not, our, we are not responsible for our acceptance of it. And then he goes on to say this, my dear friends, I'm not saying these things because I understand all this. I do not. Do not ask me why God ordains some and not others. I do not know. I'm not told in the Bible, and I know nothing except what I'm told there. I will go further. I do not want to know. It is a mystery. It is a great mystery, he says. And isn't it a mystery? But we have to proclaim both of these truths. We have to hold to both of these truths that God is sovereign over salvation, but human beings are responsible when they reject Jesus. That's what the scriptures say here. So we're responsible. Another thing Paul says we're responsible for, I think we draw from the text, is we're responsible to pray for the lost and to share the gospel with the lost. Did you notice in chapter 10, verse 1? Oh, how we have Paul's heart here. He, he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for his countrymen, for the Jews, is that they might be saved. And here's a guy who's just given us this treatise on God's election and God's sovereignty and him being the, you know, the potter and we're the clay and all of this. And now he says, man, my heart breaks for the lost. I pray for the lost. And did he share the gospel with the lost? Yeah, he shared the gospel with the lost. Oftentimes those people and those churches that have proclaimed and believed in God's election have been have gotten a bad rap because we've been kind of cold. We've lacked motivation to share the gospel, and I don't know why, because we see that this motivated Paul to actually share with the lostness of, of the people he loved. The fact that God would do a work. We know that God will do a work. We can trust him to, a work, to do a work, and so we share the gospel and we pray. So this is a challenge to me this morning, and I, I, I share it with you. Are you fervently praying for the lost in your life? Are you sharing the gospel with them? Or you just say, well, you know, God's in control, whatever. Paul was passionate about the lost. Are you passionate about the lost? Do you, does your heart break when you see people who are they're going down their path? And maybe it's a moral path, right? They're trying to do the right stuff. Maybe it's an immoral path. But either way, they're, they're, they're missing Jesus. And you know that without Jesus, they're going to spend an eternity away from him. Does that break your heart? Does that bother you? It should bother us. We should be praying for the lost and sharing the gospel with the lost. Another application point here is, and this is kind of what we've been saying the whole time, is self-righteousness is eternally deadly. Self-righteousness is eternally deadly. It will consume you with thoughts of your own righteousness, and you'll miss Jesus. You will miss Jesus. You know, it's possible to grow up in the church and know all this stuff, somehow still be trusting in your own righteousness and miss it and to totally miss it. So myopically focused on what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to act this way, say this thing, dress this way, do all this stuff. And we never realize that the gospel 
is, is about Christ being the fulfillment of all the law and all of the commandments that God's given us. In the gospel, it wasn't sinners that tripped over Jesus. And I put that sinners in quotation marks. It wasn't those that everyone knew was a sinner. They didn't trip over Jesus. Most of them we find in the gospels, they kind of were magnetically drawn to Jesus. It was the self-righteous people who didn't think they needed pretty much anything who tripped over Jesus. The sinners cried out. They wanted Jesus because they realized who he was and they realized who they were. What what is that but just good old-fashioned pride, right? Good old-fashioned pride that says, I'm good. But the people who knew they weren't good, those are the ones who cried out for Jesus. They said, Jesus, heal me, cleanse me. I follow you. For those who try, Jesus is a stumbling block. But for those who trust, he is a sure solid foundation. So if your life is about trying, Jesus is going to be a stumbling block. If you're about trusting in what he's already accomplished on the cross, oh, he's a cornerstone. You can can build your life on him because you realize, man, this this is not because of me. This is not because of what I bring to the table. It's because of, oh, the mercy of God. That's it. So I'm going to build my life on Jesus. Like I need him every day. I need him with every breath that I take. In him we attain righteousness, chapter 9, verse 30. You saw that, right? The Gentiles in chapter 9, verse 30. They attained it, it says. That means grab a hold of. That means seize. That's what the word means. You and I who see Jesus as our answer and our only hope, we seize him. We grab a hold of him like the woman who grabbed the hem of his garment. We just, I just need Jesus. And we grab a hold of it, and, and then lo and behold, we have righteousness. But the ones who are trusting in their own merits, their own efforts. They, they don't reach out for Jesus. They like Jesus. I mean, they're cool with Jesus, they think. He's, a, he's there, but they're not, they're not grabbing a hold of him. But let's remember this as, as I finish up here. God loves to take self-righteous people and make them righteous. Just look at Paul. I mean, here's an example of a guy who was as self-righteous as you could be, and God blinds him and God transforms him into somebody who actually is righteous. Now he had to blind him to do that. And so for some people who are trusting in their own efforts, it's going to take God blinding them and like changing everything, just taking the scales off their eyes. But I want to encourage you, if you have somebody in your life you know who like you don't think they're ever going to come to Christ because they just seem so prideful, so moral, so like maybe wealthy or successful, and they don't need Jesus, you just keep praying for them, okay? Because God specializes in taking self-righteous people and making them actually righteous. Let's not lose sight of that. How does that happen? How could this happen for you today? If you're here, and what I've been saying is kind of, is kind of your situation, you've been, you've been thinking, I'm doing okay on the test. Like, you know, I stand before God, the pearly gates and stuff, I'll, I'll be, I think I'll be okay. How? How can you trust? It's very simple. A child can do it but let's not miss it. I want you to look at the text one last time here and I want you to see what does it mean to trust in Jesus. Chapter nine, verse 31 and 32. If you look at verse 31 and 32, we have Israel failing. They're failing to reach righteousness. And so number one, you gotta admit failure. You gotta say, come to God and say, God, I thought I knew what I was doing. I thought I was doing okay. I gotta admit, God, I'm not okay. I have failed in my ability to keep your law. I have not been the righteous person that you desire me to be. I have failed. Two, you admit ignorance, chapter 10, verse 3. 
Here, the, the Israelites are ignorant of the righteousness of God. And that's not just them. There are many people who are ignorant of God's righteousness in Jesus Christ. And they see that picture of Jesus and they think, man, what a great man, what a good teacher. That's a shame how it all ended, though. And they miss it. They, they miss it. That's the righteousness of God hanging there. That is our sin upon him and then in Jesus' righteousness on us. And so they, they're ignorant of the righteousness of God. So this morning you say, God, I'm, I'm sorry I've been ignorant of your gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Third, you admit rebellion. Because it's even worse than just ignorance. It's rebellion. Chapter 10, verse 3. Seeking to establish your own righteousness and not submitting to God's righteousness. Saying, okay, God, th yeah, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for Jesus. I think, I'm, I think I'm good. Trying to establish your own righteousness. Ignoring his righteousness and not being submissive. It's a rebellion in our hearts. So, I mean, this is simple. A kid can do it. But if you're in here this morning and God is by his spirit working in you and you realize, man, I have never placed my trust and all of my, my heart over to Jesus. I've never given him my life. I've never given him my heart. I thought maybe because I grew up in the church, because I have a good family, I thought I'd be okay. But his word is telling me that I can't be right with God no matter how hard I try. Then you just do this. You admit your failure. You admit your ignorance of, of the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus. And you admit that you've been rebellious, that you've said, God, I'm trying to find my own way, and I, I, I'm stopping today. No more rebellion. And then you just believe in Jesus. You put your trust in him alone. And that's as simple as it is. But just because it's simple doesn't mean everyone does it, right? So this morning, if that's you, in just a little bit, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to have a prayer team up here. And I just want to implore you. Come pray with us. Come, come just ask questions. Say, man, I, here in this sermon, I'm not sure where I am. I, I need somebody to talk with me. I need somebody to pray through this with me. Please, come on up and just admit you can't do it. But that's okay. Stop trying. Stop tripping. Just trust Believe in Jesus. And this humble trust in Jesus allows us to see him as our cornerstone, to, to sing these songs and like give it our all because well, where would we be without Jesus? We need him. We build our life upon him. We realize our inadequacy, but, but we don't get angry about it. We don't go, well, I'm, man, I'm a sinner and I'm, in, I'm inadequate. And we don't get angry and stumble over Jesus. We have peace and we trust in him. You can trip over Jesus or you can trust in him.